You can see that okay? okay. All right, very good. So I was con contemplating a little bit uh, what we might like to do. And uh, I don't know about you, I've always found the Book of Romans a fascinating study. And um, in more recent years, I found it even more fascinating than I have early in my Christian experience. It's a medium length book. I mean, it's not real, real long, but yet at the same time, it's not like one of Paul's smaller epistles. So you have to work through it. And when you do that, what you're going to find is a lot of variety that is found in the book of Romans. And my question has always been um, how it fits together. And all these various components are sort of like puzzle pieces. So I don't know when the last time was you did a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, Esty got one as a gift uh, for Christmas, actually a year ago. And so we decided to lay the pieces out on the co uh, coffee uh, table. And she put most of it together. And then there was a midsection in it that I put some pieces together. And then once I got all that center part of the puzzle together, I was just, I was stymied a little bit uh, in certain areas of the puzzle because it was full of bushes and same color, uh, shades of green, all that type of stuff. And, and what she did is she kept going back to it and found out that we had put a few puzzle pieces in places they didn't really belong, but they were very, very close. And actually you could have just said, well, that's the piece for that spot, but it didn't. And it threw everything else off. And so when you look at the book of Romans, there's so many puzzle pieces to it that when you're reading it, sometimes you have to stop. And I don't know if you remember when you had a cassette uh, <laughs> tape player, you could stop and rewind it and play it over again. And sometimes that's what you need to do in the book of Romans as well. So our study for the next couple of months is gonna be rewind that. And why, what I mean by that is as we go through it, uh, different parts of it, there's going to be certain puzzle pieces that don't fit real well. And we need to kind of go back and rewind and see if it's in the right spot or not. And if that was in a different spot in the book, would it make more sense? So what I want to do tonight is I want to introduce you to something that I'm assuming that you probably have not had some exposure to. And that is different perspectives on how to approach the book of Romans. And then what we're going to do starting next week is we'll actually get into the text and we'll look at different sections of the book of Romans. But uh, for tonight, what I want to do is just introduce uh, this book and the different ways you can look at it, different ways that you can <laughs> interpret it, and it all revolves around what the purpose of the book is. So when you read the letters of Paul, and he writes the majority of the New Testament letters, you'll find that he is kind of difficult to interpret consistently. One thing he says in one book, another thing he says in another book, sometimes they're not easily harmonized. So what we want to do 
is see how Romans contributes to that conversation and look at the variety of different levels of the book of Romans. So most congregants uh, are familiar with one approach, and you're going to identify with this as soon as I bring the slide up. But it basically uses some isolated individual verses uh, in this approach that is really kind of pulled out of the chapter context that it's in. And you're going you're gonna to recognize what I mean in just a second. So the question is, when we do that, is that really what Paul had in mind when he wrote the text? And why do we feel we can take certain verses out of the book and string them together and try to force these puzzle pieces together in a particular way? So what is Paul really trying to get at? I guess that's going to be at the heart of the book of uh, the study on the book of Romans that we have to, uh, in this particular study. What is his aim? What is his goal? What is he really trying to accomplish here? So to do that, I want to introduce you to three approaches to the book of Romans that um, are the main approaches. There are several others. Uh, they are quite complex. And as you can see by my asterisk down there at the bottom of the slide, um, we're not in a PhD study, so we don't need to try to include all of them. But there are three major ones that I think you'll see and recognize in terms of how the book is used, either in sermons or in a classroom or devotional studies, wherever you've been exposed to the book of Romans, um, you're going to find these particular approaches. So having said that, um, before I go, get into these three approaches, which is gonna be our goal tonight, uh, do you have any questions or comments? Okay, so here we go. Now, this is the one that you're going to be most familiar with. Um, it's titled the Reformational Approach. Now, if you know in church history, uh, the church after 314 AD, when Constantine came to the throne uh, as the Roman emperor, he basically made Christianity the state religion. And out of that became a very powerful force known as the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church took a certain approach to um, sacraments uh, and different things like that. And by the time you get to uh, the Reformation, uh, individuals like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, and some others, uh, you'll find that there's a different approach that they take on being a Christian. And what you'll find is it's centered around, in many respects, how a person stands righteous before God. And one of the key contributions to Martin Luther resisting the Roman Catholic Church and his 95 Thesis is the concept of grace and justification. And he had a huge influence using two books of, the, of Paul, primarily Galatians and Romans. And what took place was that particular approach for Protestant churches, 
really became the dominant way of looking at Paul's writings. So in the book of Romans, this is basically how it looks. So I don't know how many of you have ever heard of the four spiritual laws. Uh, A lot of tracts have been used with the four spiritual laws. Uh, Or have any of you heard of the Romans road? That is a way of kind of going through Romans that leads to a person accepting Jesus as their personal savior. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is it, uh, um, you know, on that? Okay. So um, basically the four spiritual laws, if you, if you uh, picked up a track that um, at one time was very popular in the seventies and early eighties, they're still around, but I don't think there is a predominant now as they once were, there's four main parts that basically says in God's eyes, all all human beings are sinful. Secondly, no human being is righteous in God's eyes on the basis of what they have done, that is good deeds. Thirdly, God has provided an atonement for sin uh, for human beings through the death of Christ on the cross, and by God's grace alone, apart from human works, God finds righteous those who have faith in Christ. So this is how this looks. So much, most missionary work um, and evangelistic type preaching is built on these four spiritual laws. And that is every person is a sinner by nature, born a sinner. And there's a section in the book of Romans that is used to basically say, even a baby that is born into this world is already a sinner by the time he or she takes their first breath. Um, And then no one can do what's right in God's eyes, even though human beings often answer the question, why should you go to heaven when you die? 99% of the people would answer because I'm a good person. So this approach to the book of Romans says, well, there's no one that does good. Uh, so you're not getting into heaven on that basis. Then the next component of it is, but there's good news. So another tract or approach is there's good news and there's bad news. And that approach has often been taken as well. Let me tell you the bad news first, and then I'll tell you the good news. Well, the good news is uh, God just doesn't forgive someone without a payment for sin and Christ's death upon the cross um, pays for the sin of human beings uh, by his sacrifice. Through his resurrection, God justifies Christ in his life, and therefore Christ becomes a high priest that intercedes on behalf of sinners, and when you trust Christ, God, by his grace alone, not by anything that you have done, Uh, will give to you eternal life. So um, I think most of us are familiar with that approach, okay, to the book of Romans. It's the dominant approach uh, that has been used for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, So any questions or comments on that? So when you look at the book of Romans, you basically We'll see the way, if you take this approach, you see the way to fit all the components that are in the book of Romans. So in Romans chapter three, 
if you want to go there for a second. It, uh, in God's eyes, all human beings are sinful. We're all kind of familiar with this verse. It says here, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that verse is often pulled out of a chapter, though. And where Paul has been in chapter 2 and chapter 3 is he's talking in the focus of these couple of chapters on the Jewish people. So one question that comes up is, is all the people that have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is that just Jews or is it Gentiles as well that he has in mind? He uses a lot of Old Testament language here, for it goes on to say, um, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. But if you jump down to verse 27, he has primarily in mind the Jews. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the uh, observing the law. So what happens in this approach to the book of Romans is it's kind of assumed that we think the Jews believe that they could somehow earn their righteousness before God by the good works, keeping the Ten Commandments, keeping the Mosaic law, that type of thing. Um, what's interesting here is um, when you look at chapters one, two, and three, Paul blasts the Gentiles in chapter one, but I mean, the rest of chapter two and three mostly is about Jewish people. And so the argument gets a little bit complicated when Paul throws the Gentiles into the same mix as, uh, as the Jews and that there's no distinction between them. So the question that kind of comes up in the back of the mind of a Jewish person would be, well, don't we have any advantage that we had the law for all these hundreds and hundreds of years? The second question that sometimes comes up is, okay, the Jews had this law that God gave through Moses. Gentiles didn't have that. How can they be held responsible for a law that they never received? So there's, there's some questions that kind of come up when you, you begin to look at taking this approach. So the second main point was no human being is righteous in God's eyes uh, on the basis of deeds that they have done. Um, is the law that is in view here in chapter three is that primarily the ceremonial law of the Jews? Is it the moral law? What is he trying to get at? Because if you look at chapter three and you jump down to verse 29, 
is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised. Notice what's in viewpoint here. It's not a moral law of killing or stealing or those type of things. It's circumcision. So it's a ceremonial law that Paul brings up here. And is that what he has in mind? So we're going to take our, we're going to take some time and we'll talk through this. I just want you to get a feel for when, when you take the book of Romans and you think that the primary purpose of the book of Romans is to tell you how to get to heaven after you die, then everything kind of works through that perspective. And as it works through that perspective, um, everything relates to um, the afterlife. So is that the purpose of the book of Romans? Is that really what he's trying to get to? So the third point that's in this approach is God has provided atonement for the sin of human beings through the death of Christ. Um, so God has intervened, putting forth Jesus as using a big word, propitiation. It's uh, translated in the NIV in verse 25 of chapter 3 as a sacrifice of atonement. The Jews would be familiar with the sacrificial system, obviously, because uh, in the Torah you have the book of Leviticus, which has a ton of instructions on how to present a sacrifice. Um, and and the, the assumption here in this approach is, well, God just can't forgive he needs some type of a payment uh, for reconciliation. What form of payment will he take? Well, is it's blood. Blood has to be shed for him to forgive. So these are all tensions that come up in the discussion of this book that you're going to see in a couple of the other approaches that maybe if if that's not the approach Paul's taking in the book, there's another way of looking at what he's trying to get at. But that's in the next uh, uh, viewpoint. So the last point in the four spiritual laws is by God's grace alone, apart from human works, God finds righteous those who have faith in Christ. So uh, go over to chapter five for a second. So when you get to chapter five, it begins in verse one, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you jump down to verse 17, then in chapter five, uh, it says here, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, um, and he's talking about Adam, uh, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, all of a sudden, you are introduced to two figureheads, Adam and Christ in chapter five. And it seems as though Paul is trying to say, hey, all people are in Adam uh, until they become in Christ. And so that free gift of righteousness is received uh, by faith. And um, then the rest of the book of Romans after, after uh, basically chapter 11, then becomes a, a way of kind of maturing in your salvation. 
uh, that you've already received. The problem though is you still have chapters seven, eight, nine, 10, and 11 in the book. What do you do with it? So you might not be familiar with it off the top of your head, but basically Paul says in Romans chapter seven, um, I can't do good. Uh, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Um, and then chapter eight, the ministry of the spirit is introduced. And then in chapters nine through 11, you have this big parentheses. That's the way they describe it in this approach of the Romans. It doesn't fit anywhere. Paul just goes on this sidetrack of talking about election. The, uh, did the Jews lose their elect status um, before God? So, um, hi. Hi, how are you? Oh, okay. <laughs> no problem. No problem. Uh, so, anyways, um, what you have is this basic approach uh, is the most common by far, by far, most commentaries that you pick use this approach. And that's fine. There's no problem. That is a legitimate approach. The only problem is how do you, how do, what do you do with those puzzle pieces that just don't fit into the book? So that approach leaves a lot of unanswered questions. Um, and these questions keep surfacing throughout the whole book of Romans. And what you'll find is that um, these subjects then, you really have to do some gymnastics to get them to fit into the whole book, for example. So given the fact that Paul sees faith as essential, what do we do with the fact that if you don't respond to the offer of grace, if you don't respond by faith, well, you don't receive salvation. Well, then does faith, doesn't that constitute a, a human work since it depends upon you to respond to it. Now, he's already said that no one's justified by works. We'll talk about some of these things down the line. Could that be uh, simply no, you know, and there's a lot of explanations. No, faith isn't a work. It's the works of trying to keep the law and all this and that. So we'll, we'll talk about some of that later on. Secondly, I just mentioned in chapters 9 through 11, this, this diatribe that Paul goes on and he introduces this concept of election. And since Romans is primarily about individuals and how they get to heaven, some people are chosen, some people aren't, uh, some are elect, some aren't, some are predestined, some aren't. It, it, gets, uh, it gets a little bit complicated. Um, and then a third one that is often used in chapter 13, um, Paul says you should submit to governing authorities. Well, who is the governing authority that you're to submit to? Well, what is the title of the book? Romans. It's the Roman Empire. So here's Caesar, who's proclaiming himself to be God uh, in the flesh and the savior of mankind. And yet Paul's saying to submit 
to that governing authority. So you see, there are some pressing issues that come up in the book and how does it fit into this framework? So if you're frustrated with this, good. That's what I'm trying to do in this lesson is to get you on easy enough to think through the book, looking at it uh, through some other lenses that you never maybe looked through, okay? But that's approach number one. Some thoughts, questions, comments? Are you lost anywhere on what I said? You're shaking your head, yeah. Is that Esty? Were you shaking no, your head? Good. Oh, okay. All right, so. Your question is someone else's question too, if you do have some. Okay, so what other approaches are there to the Book of Romans? Now this is called the new perspective. That's probably not a great title. This has been around for a long, long time. However, the reason it's called the new perspective is because most of the scholars that began to think through all the difficulties of the reformational approach to the book of Romans, they, the publications have been more recent. In other words, you have elements of this new perspective in a lot of the early church fathers, but a lot of times, you know, you don't have um, a bound commentary that shows you how to make all the pieces fit from the early church fathers. What you have is this perspective coming out in the form of sermons and that type of thing. Um, but it's more recent because of commentaries that have been written where there's been a more comprehensive approach to it. So what is this approach? Well, the new perspective is a reaction to this assumption that the Jews have a work based religion. And they always felt that they had to earn their righteousness before God by the keeping of the law. So Jewish scholars, especially those that have come along and looked deeply into the roots of the development of Judaism, began to see that Jews never ever thought that they could earn a righteous standing before God. Incidentally, if you look in the Old Testament, the afterlife is hardly there. You just don't find any commenta uh, commentary in the Old Testament on how you get to heaven when you die, because that wasn't their primary concern. I think I've told you in the past, that the Old Testament is primarily how a new nation is established, developed, and then how the Davidic monarchy is justified through the Old Testament so that a Davidic king would continue to reign even after the Jewish people have been released from uh, their captivity to various empires that have held them and ruled them. So this new perspective says no, what Judaism is primarily about is covenant renewal. Now, covenant renewal is this idea that goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. And that is, it's not so much keeping the law 
for an afterlife justification, it's keeping the law for God's blessing upon the nation, not individuals, but collectively as a nation. So you'll see on the slide there that since covenant laws like the Sabbath, food laws, and circumcision were a part of this covenant that God established with the Jews um, on Mount Sinai and, and what subsequently is given to them after that moment in their history, the question then becomes, how does that then, if, it, if the works that Paul is primarily referring to in the book of Romans is for covenant renewal for the Jews, how does that relate to Gentile listeners of this book? And incidentally, Paul did not establish the church in Rome. That, he never got to Rome before this letter. So it's not like he got went there, he evangelized, he started the church. It was started by other people. Keep that in the back of your mind. And it is they have a mix of both Jews and Gentiles in this congregation. Actually, it's not one congregation. It is believed that there was about six house churches in Rome. And some of them had a heavier influence toward keeping the ceremonial law, i.e. the Jews, and Gentiles who did not have a working knowledge of this. So the emphasis in this approach is one of the reasons Paul wrote the book of Romans is not to tell you how to get into heaven after you die, but how can two groups of people that are culturally and ethnically different, how can they get along? So in the, in the book of Romans, the, one of the main reasons he wrote it is for the unity of the church and that both Jews and Gentiles would be included in this work that God is doing um, in, in the vicinity or territory of Rome. So in other words, as I have here on the slide, maybe the discussion and the way Paul approaches the book of Romans is to create a level playing field within those that are in the, these house churches in Rome. So that makes a lot of sense when you look at some passages where you see in red the last point here on the screen, God has reconciled all things in Christ. Believers reconciled in Christ. The uh, believers are reconciled with one another as well. The Christian then becomes an agent of reconciliation in the world. And that's the way the kingdom of God uh, begins, this new creation of reconciled people, both with God and with each other. And there's that element I think that you find in the book as well. So let me stop there and just, do you see kind of the different shade of this approach of reading the book? It's, a, it's an entirely different way of kind of looking at the material. Any questions so far? I just have a quick comment. Yeah, um, go ahead. What strikes me is that um, I was raised Catholic, so um, when you said that about the Jews, not really 
following the works of the law that it's more like the cat that's the catholic thing like you have to be righteous by by your works and mm -hmm. you're by you by keeping the sacraments and mm -hmm. you know you can sin your way out of heaven yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know so but don't you think that it was the they did have to follow the law in order to be righteous because they had the day of atonement or yes wrong it's not to it's not to speak entirely um it's not to speak entirely that it was just for covenant renewal, for a sense of cleansing, for a sense that God was okay with them. The gift of the Day of Atonement was given so that the people could really sense that God was on their side. The one thing I hope you'll distinguish, though, in the Old Testament, these concepts like the Day of Atonement and the sacrificial system was more of a community-based idea than it was an individual-based idea, okay? So that's important to keep in mind. How is the nation right with God so that they can get out of captivity and things like that and have their own land? And, uh, and of course, there's a lot of cultural things that come into this as well. There is still those type of beliefs that uh, that were in all the nations in the ancient Near East, that if if the gods are in favor of, uh, of you as a people, then he'll send rain and you'll have good crops and you'll be able to have food on your table. But uh, if, he, if uh, the gods are not favorable to you, then drought will come and it'll affect the crops and your uh, livestock will die. And, and so- yeah. It's a very cultural um, moment in history that we're talking about when we think of those years in the Old Testament. So it's important. So you're saying to like, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You're saying like uh, not an individual sense of guilt and, um, you know, for like as you would in like a Catholic not following the laws, but Correct. more of a community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I, I didn't ever think of it that way. Thank you. So I don't think we think of it that way as Protestants either. So um, usually all most approaches to, and I'll just use the word salvation. That's a, that's a heavily, that's a heavy word in and of itself. What does that entail? But usually it is put on the shoulders of individuals. The only time you see it in the New Testament as kind of a communal thing is when, I mean, you have a church like Corinth that has so many problems. They're divisive. Uh, you know, there's some moral problems that are going on. So he addresses the whole church and he says, don't you know you all are the temple of the Holy Spirit? That's a plural in, in the Greek language you all are the temple of Holy Spirit, you know, so get your act together type thing. So, um, yeah, I think, I don't, I think both whether you're Catholic or Protestant, the emphasis usually uh, is upon your personal destiny type thing. And how can you be secure as you move into the next world, that type of thing. I'm not so sure 
that the New Testament and certainly Old Testament is as individualistic as we Westerners are. Does that make sense? So. Yeah, thanks. Okay. So what is the purpose in the new perspective then? Well, you don't get to it until you get to chapters 12 through 16. All of a sudden in that section of the book, to get at the heart of the book, you got to begin at the end. And, and what I mean by that is the emphasis is on one another, on love, on peace with each other, on how the spirit creates unity, how stronger believers are to be sensitive to the needs of weaker believers, all that type of thing. And so there's a lot of concrete situations in chapters 12 through 16. And once you see that, once you see that, all of a sudden you begin to see in chapters 1 through 11, those very, those concepts are in that, uh, that part of Romans 2. But because we concentrate, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, no one is, you know, saved except by justification, that type of thing, we tend to miss it. And so um, the heart of the purpose in this perspective is the relationship of the Roman Christians with each other. And how does this new group of people, of Jewish and uh, Gentile people, how do they relate to the state of Rome? So Rome is the capital of the Roman Empire. How are they going to get along in that situation? How do they relate to the state? Ah, so he writes a chapter 13 on submitting to governing authorities. That makes some sense when you, you kind of take this approach. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you're using the four spiritual laws approach. So the other thing that you find at the end is one of the purposes Paul writes the book of Romans is he wants um, to prepare them because when he gets to Rome, he wants to take up a collection. We often call this a love offering. He wants to take up a love offering to send back to the Christians that are living in Jerusalem because they had experienced a lot of persecution and they didn't have the financial means to continue. So um, that'll, that'll come up. The other thing you'll see at the end of the book is Paul wants to make Rome the base for his next um, missionary thrust. He wants eventually to get to Spain. Well, he needs a, a center of strong support a lot closer to Spain than either Jerusalem or Asia Minor or even Philippi and Corinth in Greece. What he needs a, a place closer to Spain that he can use as a base to carry his message into Spain. So we'll get to that. But it seems as though what he's trying to do in the book of Romans, everything that he's using here is to try to achieve that end. And that is he wants to send money back to Jerusalem, but he wants to get ready to move on to Spain. Make sense? Okay. 
All right, so let's go to the third one. Oh, I, I have one more slide on this. So why this approach? Paul is probably taking a pastoral approach more than a theological approach uh, in terms of thinking of those local house churches where the strong, or at least that's how they viewed themselves, strong Christians were to open the doors and welcome to the table those that were weak. Now that might be Jew and Gentile. Jews might've thought of themselves as strong and looked upon the Gentiles as weak. But what you're going to find, and you can see some references there, um, he is trying to create a fellowship of siblings, brothers and sisters. And the emphasis is quite strong in chapters 12 through 16 of them getting along. The other thing it does is in Romans 9 through 11 is it's an attempt to show the nation of Israel that they are still God's people. Certainly, God has not rejected them as God's people. However, God's people has now been expanded to include Gentile people, not Jewish people. Okay, so Paul's not so much focused on salvation, although there are elements of it in the book, but a situational um, a focus where both Jews and Gentiles need to be humbled. And that's why he blasts both groups like he does. Uh, he, he does that to humble them so that they see that they're all on a level playing field. That makes sense, everybody? All right, so there's one other main approach that has been used for the Book of Romans. It's called the apocalyptic approach. Now, when, <laughs> when we hear the word apocalyptic, we think of end times, disaster, end of the world type thing. Okay, put that out of your mind. Uh, the word apocalypsis in Greek means unveiling. That's all it means. So Roman, I mean, Revelation is called an apocalyptic book because it's the great unveiling of the future and all this and that. Really, the word means when something that has been hidden has now been revealed. That's all the word apocalyptic means. So what has been hidden is now seen. And this approach, scholars have said, is Paul's gospel rests upon a new revelation from God that is centered in Jesus. So I want you to go back to chapter one real quick. Notice how... Um, Paul begins this book in uh, chapter one, verse one. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. That is the good news of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. So he talks about how the Old Testament is preparatory for a new kind of revelation in the Son of God, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith, 
and you also among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So the way he begins is he talks about, well, what has come before was all kind of preparatory to lead to this new unveiling of what God is doing in the person of Christ. So this approach is basically saying you're kind of looking through a, a cloudy window, a steamed up window. When you look in the Old Testament, you couldn't see things clearly. And when Christ comes, all of a sudden, it, you see through a new uh, window that has not been steamed up or clouded up. And uh, now the truth is more definitively disclosed through Jesus than it was in the Old Testament prophets. So this approach is saying one of Paul's purposes is how Jesus unveils what God is up to. And one of the things that God is up to relates to both Jew and Gentile. You see the way the book begins it doesn't take long to get into this idea of Gentile and Jew. And then as it continues on, the focus is first on Gentiles, then on Jews, um, before he gets to this idea of both groups finding justification before God in Christ. So the key question in this approach is, well, what does Jesus reveal or unveil? that could not be understood in all of the Old Testament writings. And one of the uh, objectives of Paul is to unveil certain things that you didn't have clarity on from the Old Testament text. That makes sense? Okay. So I hope you've seen so far that all three approaches really do give to you some tools to work with in the book, okay? So I'm going to tip my hand here. I'm not so sure one approach is the only approach. Uh, I think all three make contributions in understanding what Paul is trying to do. So what is it that Jesus reveals or unveils? Well, a key concept in the book of Romans is deliverance. Jesus reveals a deliverance from uh, an incarcerating state that we find ourselves in. Now we look at chapter seven through nine, and that is, uh, or seven it, it primarily, six through eight, but chapter seven primarily, where Paul seems to be pulling his hair out because he goes, you know what, I can't do anything right. And when I do want to do something right, I mess it up. And when I don't want to do what I want to do, but I do it anyways, you know, that type of thing. All of a sudden in chapter seven, Paul using himself as a primary example says, here's the frustration of the law, i.e. ceremonial law of the Jews. No one can keep it. Everybody falls short of it. Um, and so he uses himself and you got to kind of keep in the back of your mind what he has said in some of his other letters. You remember the book of Philippians, he says, I'm a Jew of the Jews. I'm born 
uh, a descendant uh, of, you know, uh, Benjamin and and I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And I mean, he really touts his resume in the book of Philippians. So he basically is saying in chapter seven of Romans, he's saying, well, if anybody, if anybody could have kept the law, it would have been me. But all I did was find myself frustrated by it. And um, so how can the flesh be healed from its shortcomings? And it's, uh, and so he talks a little bit about how the flesh can't be repaired or healed. It must be terminated and reconstituted. So in chapter seven of Romans, he says, you know, you got to die to the flesh. And, uh, and he uses terms like that. You just got to, you got to kill it. And, um, and then, you know, he gets to uh, chapter eight, verse one, this great verse in the book of Romans, where he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. It's kind of like the weight has been taken off of his shoulders because his frustration with himself uh, and his shortcomings and stuff is not what makes him right before God. And what we might find him doing in chapter seven, we'll talk about this when we get to it, is he's not really just talking about himself alone. He's talking about humanity as a whole and our frustration of being unable to do what we want to do or resist doing what we shouldn't do. That makes sense, everybody? Any comments or questions there? Now, I know this is a lot, okay? And you don't need to know it all tonight. I just want you to see the big picture. So go back to that puzzle. How do you put a jigsaw puzzle together that has so many pieces to it? What's the first thing you do? You put the border around it, okay? So if you don't put the border around it, Chances are it's going to take you a lot longer to put that puzzle together. All I've given you here with these three perspectives is kind of like a border to the puzzle so that we can get into these type of topics. So this last perspective also talks a little bit about participation. Um, this apocalyptic starting point for Paul is an analysis of how we participate in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And then he talks about how that affects the entire cosmos. In chapter eight, he personifies the cosmos saying it's standing up on tiptoe, waiting for the revelation, there's that word unveiling, of the sons of God. So um, he talks a little bit about how we participate in God's uh, long-planned consummation of the universe, how he's going to right the wrong that is done in the cosmos. And he concentrates that this fellowship of siblings, of brothers and sisters, both Jew and Gentile, male and female, how they are a part of that and the role that they play in that. So, um, so what we're doing basically is rewinding that. Well, so we're going to look at some passages, and I'm going to use a book by Scott McKnight. Um, 
that does a great thing at getting to some of these things by not going through the book like we read a normal book in terms of starting in chapter one and reading through chapter 16. He's saying to get to the heart of what Paul is trying to do is you have to look at the back section of the book of Romans first to get to his purpose. What is he really trying to do? That offering and get to Spain ultimately. How does that affect? So um, he suggests that we start with that section first, chapters 12 through 16, get a handle on that, then come back and get into the rest of the beginning of Romans and the midsection of Romans. And uh, then you, there you might be able to see a little bit clearer what Paul's trying to do. And what I thought of when I was thinking about how uh, preachers structure their sermons, sometimes, and um, they will state at the top of their sermon, uh, their main point, their big idea. And then the rest of the sermon is trying to prove those points. But occasionally, pastors will take a different approach. Instead of it uh, being the main point at the top and it being kind of like a, a moving to the base, rather you flip that around and there's all kinds of material and it's more like a funnel that you use, okay? All this material is winding down to a main point. Uh, so, you know, if you have a funnel that you use to pour oil in or soap in or whatever, um, you know that you got that big wide brim and then it goes down to a main point. So, you know, in philosophy, it's kind of the difference between inductive and deductive reasoning and different things that play into that. But um, maybe, maybe Paul is not stating what he's up to right at the beginning, but it comes at the end and you almost have to work backwards to get it, okay? So um, any, any thoughts or comments there? Because I want to give you one last slide uh, to finish our evening off tonight. But let me see if you have any questions or comments. So Pete Enns, one of my favorite authors and scholars, he suggests that there are several things that you have to keep in mind when you encounter a tough text. And the whole book of Romans is filled with some tough texts. So let's just keep these in mind. Okay. So he suggests um, the audience makes a difference. Who's he talking to? Is it Jews, Gentiles, or both? This, is, this is, isn't just the book of Romans. This is also, it can be other books too. Okay. Secondly, uh, he feels in relationship to the book of Romans that it's not about individuals, but it's about a collective. So let me throw two big words at you. It's about ecclesiology, not so, uh, soteriology. Soter soteriology is the theology of how you get saved. Ecclesiology is the makeup of the church. So who makes up the people of God and what role do the Gentiles play in it? Thirdly, uh, when Paul does talk about predestination and election in the book of Romans, he suggests that it's talking about groups, not individuals. And we'll 
wrestle with that a little bit down the line. Number four, the condemnation of death has been reversed in the resurrection of Christ. Death is something that unites both Jew and Gentile experience. Thus, he'll use this image of all people being in Adam. But now everybody is alive in Christ. So his main, the main idea Paul will try to get at is Christ rules, death does not, even though it appears that death does because we still experience death. But it's Christ who is ruling in life. And then finally, number five, the, the center is not Torah obedience that marks you off as somebody who's part of the family of God, but rather Jesus, uh, Paul will deconstruct that to show that Jesus is the center of what makes individuals a part of the family of God. So I, th I thought those were some helpful comments as he talked a little bit. He did a whole podcast on this. Uh, he takes a whole hour talking about this, and you can look it up. Uh, his podcast is called The Bible for Normal People, and um, um, he has some great guests that come on, uh, but if you, if you thumb through that, and it's a, I use podcasts all the time in the car, listening while I'm driving, uh, if you're walking, uh, if you're working out, if the podcasts are a wonderful thing, to, you know, because you can uh, do something um, very constructive with your time uh, as, you're, as you're doing those things. So that's what I have for you tonight. Uh, don't get frustrated. Um, I just was putting the border around the puzzle. That's all I was doing, okay? So um, when we come now to different passages in the book of Romans, we'll pull upon these three things and we'll see how that makes a difference with what's in the text. That makes sense, everybody? Okay. Any questions or comments? Okay. If not, well, it's great to have you online, and I'm looking forward to our study together. And uh, we'll, get, uh, we'll get together again next Wednesday night. Good evening, everybody. Bye. Thanks. Take care. Stay warm. We will try. <laughs> <laughs>